Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read through the big book through the eyes of an atheist and hopefully provide a different view on some of the things the book contains. It's my hope that through exploring these things that I can help those that wish to stay sober while strengthening my own recovery. This is episode three. I'm just going to go right into things. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, the way this works is I read something out of the Daily Stoic. I share my own experience around that, and then I get right into reading the big book. While I'm reading the big book, I'm going to interject at different times and sort of, you know, just kind of riff on what I'm reading and hopefully make a little bit more sense of it. I'm kind of recording some of these back to back so I can have a few that are uploaded right away and uh, so the dates are real close together. I don't think I'll be able to release these on the day that I read them and I'm not really sure when I'll be able to record these in relation to the day so I'm just going to read the day as it is. I'm sure the information inside this will line up with folks. Um, For me it usually is the case. I'm sure there's going to be some folks that are curious as to why I've chosen to read out of the Daily Stoic uh, in my journey of sort of self-discovery. I ended up stumbling upon this book. I think a friend told me about it, and I just have been trying to utilize it as a way to start my day. I found that a lot of the stuff in here fits me in a way that uh, maybe some of the other daily meditations didn't, and it doesn't seem to be overtly religious or overtly God-heavy. I am by no means a uh, scholar in philosophy or even well-read when it comes to Stoics. Uh, I just, like I said, the information that's in here and the way that it's explained just ends up really kind of helping me either frame the day or maybe work on some stuff that I've been struggling with. Uh, We're just going to go ahead and read July 4th since that's the day this is. Protect the flame. Protect your own good and all that you do and as concerns everything else take what is given as far as you can make reasoned use of it. If you don't you'll be unlucky, prone to failure, hindered, and stymied. Epictetus Discourses 4.3.11 The goodness inside you is like a small flame, and you are its keeper. It's your job today and every day to make sure that it has enough fuel that it doesn't get obstructed or snuffed out. Every person has their own version of the flame and and is responsible for it, just as you are. If they all fail, the world will be much darker. That is something you don't control. But so long as your flame flickers, there will be some light in the world. So what I like about this book, so just so you know, this is the Daily Daily Stoic uh, by Ryan Holiday and, and Stephen Hanselman. They give their own take on the uh, the passage they've chosen, and it doesn't always align for me in what I just read. And in this case, it kind of doesn't align either. I, I sort of interpret this a little differently than what they did. Protect your own good in all that you do, and as concerns everything else, take what is given as far as you can make reasoned use of it. That more to me is, well, yeah, protect your own good, protect the good that's inside you, but that I feel like is more saying that what you're protecting it from is your reaction to the things that are incoming. So if you're on a path of just trying to be a better person or at least just doing a little better than you did yesterday someone's being just you know rude to you but they're doing something kind in the same process which can happen plenty of times I've had people that are you know they're doing something for me maybe at work 
and they're just being kind of shitty about it. I can choose to allow that to affect my day or even affect my disposition, uh, or I can just take what they've done for me and move on, you know? That doesn't mean that I let people walk all over me or I let people treat me poorly, but it does mean that if somebody's treating me poorly, then I don't respond in kind. Like, I don't just decide that they're going to get what, what I'm getting from them. Um, I take the parts that are useful to me, and then if, you know, if somebody is being difficult with me, then I, I can hopefully pull them aside and just talk to them, have some sort of form of communication. At times, that's just impossible. You know, I work with uh, clients that work at other job fields that I, you know, in other companies, and I can't just pull them aside and tell them, hey, you're being kind of a dick right now. But at the same time, I can just sort of appreciate my own work what I'm doing in the world or whatever it is, I don't have to let that affect me. I don't have to let, let that affect my day. I don't have to let that affect my disposition. If in fact what they're doing isn't useful to me, then I don't have to let that go any further than, than that. That interaction doesn't have to expand in any way. It doesn't have to turn into something. It could just be somebody being rude and I move on from it. That's the goal anyways. And the reason for that is, yeah, once, you're, once the good's kind of out of you, once you're no longer putting a little bit of good out into the world, uh, you're just sort of contributing to the more negative aspects of things. And that I'm not a firm believer in the whole, like, stay positive at all times. That's impossible and it's a ridiculous, like, attempt at life. I don't think that everybody should just be positive, positive vibes only. I think that's just unnecessary and kind of counterproductive. But it does kind of put the control in how you act daily into your own hands and takes it out of the people that are around you. You shouldn't let some altercation at the supermarket decide that the rest of your day is shitty. You know, don't hold those grudges. And you know, that's a good lesson for me overall. I, I struck when I worked retail, I really struggled with how my customers treated me. If they treated me poorly, I didn't do well with just finding a way to continue to go about my day without it affecting me. And what would end up happening is that my shitty disposition would then transfer over to others. It would transfer over to my employees or other customers in the future or even my spouse at home if I was married or in a relationship at the time. And I think that's more what this is saying is had I had I been more equipped to just sort of I guess brush that off because in the grand scheme of things, a customer being rude to me isn't like even all that important. I don't remember most of the inter interactions I've had that I would consider being rude. There's a few because they were pretty out there. But the fact that I would let that affect my day to the point to where I became the person now that is, you know, shitting on someone else's day. That's the part that I think is important. And with that, let's get right into the big book. So where we left off was at the beginning of the doctor's opinion. Uh, for those that are following along, I guess that's uh, XXIII. I don't know which version of the book that's going to be for you guys uh, or girls, but uh, this is... The doctor's opinion. You, I'm sure you can find it. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Al Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I've specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a, complete, a competent businessman of good earning capacity, 
was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. That word, that's an important word. It, it seems like as AA has progressed over the years, uh, people have moved away from using the word recovered with the ED at the end. And I've even gotten looks, if I've used it in the past, you know, the, the, the ideal now is that you'd never recover fully. Uh, and to reference yourself as recovered is sort of setting yourself up for failure. But quite honestly, I don't think that was the intention of the people that created the program. I don't think that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob expected that they would be ever drinkers again. Once they discovered that this program works in some capacity, I expected that they felt that they were fully recovered, so long as they continue to maintain the works of the program. Uh, back to the reading. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance. Because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very yours truly, William D. Silkworth, M.D. So this is an important thing that he says here. He's not just saying that he thinks the program's going to work. He's saying you can believe the people that are in this program because they're telling the truth. He's, he's not just signing off that the program will work. He's signing off on the people that created the program, one of which was an alcoholic he felt was completely irreparable beyond any way of fixing. They've come around to the point to where this doctor who specializes in alcoholic recovery uh, feels that the group can offer something to people that is wholly believable. He's now of a, an opinion that you can trust the program. That's a big thing, especially for a lot of the people that were involved this early into things. You know, the only other solutions before AA or before other groups was full-on religious conversion uh, or, you know, some sort of rehab, as he's describing, and in some cases, just not recovery at all. You just are just considered completely hopeless, like he said. I can't imagine a world where I would feel... I mean, I have felt hopeless... But after being in AA and knowing that there are other recoveries even still besides AA, you know, that, that feeling of hopelessness, but there's still hope, I guess. It just, it's a good feeling. It's a safe feeling. Even when I was kind of at my worst, I think, you know, I think this is kind of an important thing. So at one point before I ended up completely quitting uh, this, la this last time, because there's been a few, you know, there was a point where I'd, I'd actually forgotten about AA as an option. Not... I, I guess it would, so it was weird. I was talking with somebody on the phone and I was, I was pretty drunk and I just felt like that hopelessness that, that, um, I'm sure plenty of people have felt before that there just was no hope for me that this was, I, there was no way out that I was completely stuck. I was trapped. I wanted to quit, but I knew that I couldn't. I just felt that it was impossible that there was no, no chance for me. And that's where I do talk about the insanity of alcoholism and the insanity of being stuck inside your own head. I had multiple years and multiple different versions of coming to the program of AA at this point. I had come to the program as a teenager who wasn't even sure they wanted to quit. 
just wanted to impress some girl. I've come to AA after having committed a heinous crime while intoxicated and spending multiple years in prison. I came to this program broken uh, and defeated. Uh, I came to this program because I had, you know, acquired a DUI and it was kind of necessary for diversion. I mean, ultimately, I ended up being able to choose a different program. I didn't have to go to meetings, but I found my way back in the rooms because I thought, you know, hey, if I'm getting a DUI, then maybe there's something going on. But here I was so completely removed from that and just so sucked up into my own hopelessness and my, my own drinking and my own depression that I'd forgotten that this was an option. You know, I'm texting my friend and she's like, well, maybe you should seek help. And I'm thinking there's nobody in the world that could help me right now. And maybe that part was true because of what, you know, came after that. But just thinking back to that moment of feeling like, you know, I collapsed in the kitchen where I kept my liquor and just, just sat on the floor and cried because I didn't think there was anything that could possibly save me. That's how some of these people must have felt before AA even was a construct. Just this debilitating fear that there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to quit. There was no one who could help me. You know, I just can relate, I guess, to in a way how Dr. Silkworth is looking at this. It's like there's hope for people. And if I tell them that they can go to this program and get better, you know, this this is going to help them. And giving his full support in saying specifically that you can trust what they say. That's I guess that's the part that's important because there were some programs at this point there was the recovery programs that he led. There was uh, the Oxford groups had their own recovery. There were different forms of rehab. Hell, they were even experimenting. I don't know if it was around this time, but they were even experimenting with hallucinogens and having that be a way to help people that were deep into alcoholism. But what was missing was this aspect of helping others as an alcoholic, helping uh, the next person out of the mire. When you're when you're that far into drinking, when I was that far into drinking, I just didn't feel like I could trust anybody. I just didn't think that the people that I was that were there to help me were actually trying to help me. I just expected that they had ulterior motives. So having this sign off of a doctor who's who's seen it all saying you can trust these people. I think that's a big, that's very important. It's very specific the way that he worded that. Uh, back to the reading. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright metal, uh, mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out of this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot uh, otherwise account. Though we work out our solutions on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting that we have what we have to offer. This is interesting because there's there's sort of like an anecdotal thing where you know the story goes that Dr. Bob, not not the Dr. Silkworth here, but Dr. Bob, who 
you know, operated on people's colons and stuff, um, while in the process of getting sober was, was overcome with jitters. He was, he was going through withdrawals, but he had a surgery that he had to take care of. And, you know, the story goes that the only option really was for them to kind of give, they gave him a beer, I believe, or a shot or something so that they could calm his nerves so he could go to surgery. And then later on after that, he got sober. It kind of just calls to the fact that they really did sort of understand the physical side, at least somewhat. Maybe they weren't medically aware, but there weren't, pro I'm, I'm guessing that there weren't uh, very specific ways of weaning people off of alcohol in a safe manner outside of extreme cases where you're fully hospitalized, like they said. Uh, but in this case, it they, you know, he was basically kind of in between, like he was fine. He just needed to do the surgery and they gave him the shot. And I, you know, I don't know what that means in the grand scheme of things, just kind of an interesting anecdotal take on how they view, they viewed sobriety and how it worked. You know, it's not like Dr. Bob was cast out because of that. They encouraged him to do it so that he could take this, you know, do this surgery, get control of his limbs for a minute. And it also calls to the strength of the program because he, you know, became sober after, after that. It's not like he had that drink and then just booked it, you know? Anyways, I always find these kind of little stories that happened during the uh, beginnings of alcoholic synonymous and and even stories middle and, and end you know really fascinating and that's one of them that i just found really fascinating i feel kind of bad for the dude who was getting you know operated on i feel bad for the ones that he operated on where he maybe didn't take that shot you know what i'm saying it's kind of an asshole move the doctor writes the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction i say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction there was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when i was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics but it's application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we were perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And, you know, I, I think this is important because one of the points of resistance that I had for other forms of recovery, or at least rehab in general, was this, especially when I was younger, was this idea that there's not anybody. They're not. There's not anybody there that's going to relate to me unless they've been down the same kind of a path as me. Like that was important to me. So I am sure that that's been a huge reason why Alcoholics Anonymous, in in a lot of ways, has been successful. It's not like there's a group leader that just went to school, earned a degree, and is like, "You need to quit drinking." I read all about why, and I'm going to tell you how. You know, there's something different about someone who came from the depths of whatever hell it was they crawled out of, and put the things into action that they're telling others to put into action and have actual success from it. And that success might not be some major mansion or some some huge company or millions of dollars, but that success is that they've stopped drinking. And seeing that actually occur and having that person be the one to tell me about the program, it was, was really the only way it was going to happen, to be quite honest. I just don't imagine that, and I've had well-meaning, well-read people tell me how to fix my problems, but while they may be able to fix what you know what went wrong in my childhood or how I uh, interact with humans they, they didn't really offer me any way of not drinking you know not like AA did not like this kind of a recovery did back to the reading many years ago one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital and while here he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once 
Later, he requested the privilege to being allowed to tell his stories to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long with and warily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves, and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Now, again, back in the day when you quit, man, you quit because you were, you were fucking desperate. You'd reached a point to where you were physically dependent on alcohol. There is that, of course, with anybody who quits, but the dependency can get to the point to where quitting alcohol can kill you. And that's kind of where they're at with Bob is like, they didn't want to have to hospitalize him before he went to that surgery. And they didn't want to have to hospitalize him if, you know, just one little shot would get him through until they could get him better care. I personally have never gotten to the point to where I needed medical attention in order for me to quit, but I know people who have, and it's a terrifying thing. There's no guarantee that you'll live through that process. So I'm always impressed with those that have that part of their story where, you know, they were physically incapable of quitting to the point of needing that medical attention, and they went through the hell of withdrawals to quit. Like, I don't know personally if I'd be capable of doing that and I've been through a lot that's not to say that I'm not capable it's just just honestly my hat's off to anyone out there who has been able to find a way to quit with the requirements of having to physically withdrawal from alcohol uh, back to the reading we believe, as so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So, uh, as an aside, I've chosen to look at my alcohol intake as that of an allergy. And I haven't really, I haven't really found a lot of information to suggest that that's actually true in any way. I think it's a lot more anecdotal than that. But for me, being able to just address it as if it were kind of a life-altering ailment has made it at times easy to completely abstain from it. There have been occasions where I've been out with friends and I've seen some sort of liquor that I remember drinking and liking. And it's very easy for me to remind myself, well, if I do that, I break out and all these terrible things, you know, I break out and handcuffs is one of the jokes. I break out and, you know, uh, loss of friendships and relationships, and then I potentially could die. At this point in my recovery, having had suicide as a part of my story, and having had moments where I still felt suicidal even while I was recovered, kind of plays into that. You know, to me, it could be a death sentence going back to drinking. So it's a lot easier for me to just look at it as an allergy. I mean, it's a little dramatic to say that, you know, me just taking a shot of whiskey is going to kill me, but it really helps <laughs> my, my mentality around it. Especially when I consider the fact that not every single time that I drank led to some catastrophic, horrible event. There were times where I drank and just nothing happened. I just had a good night and went home. It was the continued drinking. There was never any real precursor to when it was going to turn sour or when things were going to get bad. So just treating it like an allergy, like I said, it's just, just easier for me. I appreciate that they've given that as an option to folks in this book. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon human things, 
their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message, which can interest and hold these alcoholic people, must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves, even if they are to recreate their lives. And boy, are they that this is... For me, this is one of the more powerful parts of this entire book. And it kind of plays into, for me, this is the first time that I see that, you know, I'm going to have to change everything. There's a potential that in order for me to really actually actively be a participant in my life, I may have to change every aspect of it, or at least change a good portion of it. I need to be open to the possibility that that's what's going to come next. If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a little while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work, and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing among them. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that, while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented, unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they f see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an, an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And again, this just, you know, calls right back to a lot's going to have to change. A lot of serious shit's going to have to change. While drinking may be something that, uh, you know, as an alcoholic, I can't control, right? And maybe that's something I'll just never be able to control. What's more important is once I stop drinking, there's, there's a lot of work left ahead of me. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seems doomed, who has had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for drink uh, for alcohol. God, they had such a weird way of framing some of these things. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit that we have uh, made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. And I think, so this is where he kind of skirts around the thing and says that, you know, you need a, a power greater than yourself. He doesn't come out right and say, you need God. Jesus is your only salvation. You're never going to be able to quit unless you find him. He is saying that there's something a little bit more than just telling you that you need to quit. And there's something a little bit more than you just coming to terms with the fact that maybe you're an asshole and that could be part of why when you drink, things go sour. And this is kind of when I start to look at the option that there are things that you can utilize as this quote-unquote higher power. And for me, it's just 
AA as a whole. Like the idea that it works is enough for me. You know, like the belief there's, here's this whole group of people that came together and decided, okay, we're going to give this, this thing a try. We're going to try to not only stay sober, but in doing so help others to stay sober. And I'm going to believe in this process a hundred percent, whether they felt that the belief was because of God stepping in and allowing them to believe that, or just that the belief in that if they help others, then they will obtain, you know, sobriety and remain sober. They believed in it and belief's a powerful thing, whether you're religious or not, it just is. I mean, it has a lot to do with self-esteem, confidence. It has a lot to do with uh, success in life. It just really does. And if you can believe that a program is going to help you, like as it, as I look at it, I believe in the process of the AA program. And when I choose to do that, it helps me. Then that's, that's to me is the part that he's talking about. While there are some people I'm sure that have recovered under just basic psychiatric evaluation and some rehab, I have a feeling that when they left the hospital, um, there was still some aspect of belief that was required for them to continue to maintain sobriety or to feel recovered. And I'm not one of those people that says, well, they weren't real alcoholics because they didn't need AA. I'm more one of those that feels that maybe their problems were a little different and whatever they chose to believe has helped them in a way that is similar to what I choose to believe inside the program of AA. I'll talk more about this and I'm sure when I get guests on here and I start really going through a lot of the different kinds and styles of recovery that it's going to be a theme I think that's going to keep coming up. Just belief, really. Just the belief in a thing. That's a real powerful thing. I mean, there, there wouldn't be as many religions as there are thousands and thousands of religions, millions of people that follow these religions, if belief wasn't a thing. And while it can be destructive and it can be damaging, it can also be really healing and powerful. And this is kind of, you know, the fruit of some of that labor of belief is what he's saying here. That was what the program could offer these people that him as a, as a doctor couldn't, and him as someone who's worked in psychiatric versions of curing people of alcoholism just couldn't offer. He goes on to say, I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which has to be settled on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to that date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult, and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There's the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And there's a little bit more. Uh, what I find interesting about 
this portion of it is again this was a long time ago this was like you know 1930s is essentially when these people all met and they started really working on this stuff and uh you know of course this was written later and, and that letter was probably written later but this time there wasn't medications that were supposed to help people be able to relieve that that obsession of drink um you know some people are prescribed the medications uh, in order to abstain while they're on some program of recovery due to the courts or some other thing and abuse is what i was thinking of there's a whole bunch now that are out there what's interesting i knew people man that would that would be prescribed and abuse as part of their their treatment of recovery you know because of whatever court order that they were under and they would have to go in and they would have to do UAs and stuff like that. They would figure out a way to drink while taking the antabuse and beat the UA. Like that was, they, I have a really good friend who's done shit like that. So that to me just really just reaffirms the fact that, you know, you could remove the alcohol, even the craving of alcohol, which antabuse is supposed to do. There's just some other aspect. There's something else at play that causes people to choose to drink even when they're given a a physical option of removing that, you know, that supposed phenomenon of craving, which I do believe is a real thing. I just don't believe it's 100% situated in a physical realm. I think there's some mental, you know, thing at play. And quite honestly, for a lot of people, it is just alcohol. The, the people that are, you know, they get, my friend was put on an abuse. He didn't just decide, well, I better start doing some heroin. He just was in a way, really obsessed with drinking. He didn't figure out how to smoke weed on it and beat the UA that way. He didn't figure out how to take other kinds of downers. Not saying that that wasn't an option for him. And in my own past, I've had experience with, with medications and other drugs. But for some reason, man, it just seems, you know, there's just something different, I guess, with alcohol. And he's, you know, they try to explain it in this book and they try to explain it in other, in other uh you know, pieces of literature, but I always come back to the idea that there are people that are put on these medications that remove that phenomenon of craving, that remove that feeling of, of, of need for the alcohol, the physical part of it, and then they still drink, you know, even when like drinking on an abuse is supposed to be fucking awful. It's supposed to just make you puke. And my friend would even say like, it's pretty, it's pretty fucked up drinking on an abuse. And I would ask him like, why would you do it? And he's like, I just can't, can't help it. Uh, so back to the reading. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps, perhaps I could best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to a case of psychological mental deterioration. He's lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living one might say to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, uh, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partially recognized his features but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. 
The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless had hidden in a deserted barn de determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the quote-unquote willpower to resist the impulse to drink. I'm going to mention this because I think it's going to be important. All through my life, whether in a, a recovery or out of recovery, I've heard people say that there's just this willpower part of recovery that you know if you just can't hold your liquor or you can't stop drinking someone who doesn't have those issues who can have just a couple beers without having to worry about fucking calamity in their life as a result just decide it's because it's a lack of willpower you're just not trying hard enough and it used to piss me off when i heard this kind of stuff and what i've learned is whatever has come about their life to decide inside them that there's just some lack of effort in in mine you know to to quit drinking that if i just really up fucking applied myself then i'd be able to quit and other people's the same thing you know these people that don't understand addiction in any sense of the word and have just decided that because they don't understand it or haven't experienced it then it's fake and false and other people are just making it up so that we all feel sorry for them or whatever their decision making is i've just learned that in a lot of instances that same way of thinking is applied to other aspects of their life and it's honestly just been best for me to to avoid them. Now that doesn't mean that people like that can't come around to understanding a little better, uh, you know, the situation that others might face who struggle with addiction and struggle with recovery and struggle with, you know, being in and out of the programs. But I just, I have just come to where I don't waste a lot of time with allowing that to affect me and my recovery. I know this isn't a thing of willpower. I've talked about this with other people multiple times. It takes a lot of willpower to drink. I, that's going to sound weird to some people, but it really does. It does. It takes a weird sense of willpower to decide that you're going to stop at that liquor store and buy a bottle of alcohol even though you don't want to. That to me is a sense of willpower. It's overcoming obstacles in order to get the thing that you want. It might be a thing that's trying to kill you. But if you can apply that, I guess, in a different sense, then yeah, I mean, you're already utilizing a willpower of, of some kind. But it's a willpower that's, that's attached to something that's beyond your control. It's beyond my control anyways. It's a willpower that is feeding a thing that I can't comprehend, that I can't understand, and I can't combat. So it's not like I'm lacking willpower. It's that there's just this something inside me that's a little stronger than just my general willpower. And it's not a failing because I can't overcome that without help. It just isn't. If there were any part of me that was debilitated to the point to where my own attempts to fix it just weren't capable enough, then it wouldn't be a failing. If my legs gave out and I wasn't able to walk again, I wouldn't suddenly just be told that, well, you just need to think a little harder about it, son. You just need to try a little harder, you know? If you really put your mind to it, you'd be able to walk. There's something inside me that's just broken when it comes to drinking and other forms of substances. And this is true of other people. No differently than there's a thing inside others that are broken that require them to have insulin injections or that require them to have, you know, some kind of a monitor diet. So I don't know. Don't get stuck, man. If you're listening and you have people in your life that are telling you that this is just a sign of weakness, I just feel like it's a lot of projection. 
I think in others, that's more important to them is this ideal that they are somehow more stronger willed than other people because they don't suffer from this addiction. No amount of science seems to be able to sway a lot of these people. It just doesn't seem to be a thing that can occur. And getting caught up in what they feel your addiction is, is just a dangerous thing. It's just a dangerous kind of calls back to the reading. Don't let other people extinguish your flame. Don't let, don't let other people decide for you that you're weak because you're struggling with this. You know, I, I don't know. I, it's really easy for me to get caught up on that myself. I know how destructive that can be internally, um, especially the further away I get from like active recovery. Because then I start, yeah, I start kind of telling myself, well, I'm stronger now as a human, so that means I could probably drink, right? Even though that's not a game I play very often with myself, and it's not something I've really been struggling with this round of recovery, it is what led to me going back out and drinking for 10 years, even though drinking had caused me to black out and try to kill somebody. You know, it's a dangerous game to play, so I just tend not to even bother with it. If somebody is of a mind that they feel that you're just weak because if, if somebody tells me that it's just because I'm weak and that's the reason why I can't drink, then, you know, I just don't give them a lot of space. Just don't give them a lot of space in my head and I don't give them a lot of my time otherwise. So uh, back to the reading. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology and we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become quote unquote sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is a fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. They just wrote so weird back then. That's that's the end of that chapter, and it's probably going to be close to the end of this, this episode. I'm not going to go uh, and start Bill's story. That's a wild ride, Bill's story. But, man... <laughs> I'm struggling with some of the way that they've chosen to word things. And I know some of that is just because I'm not that well read in general when it comes to older literature. So I have a hard time framing the way that they put things in to, you know, speech because it doesn't line up with my cadence and the way that I speak and the way that I read things. Uh, so I'm sure as I continue to read this book, it'll get a little easier. I feel like I struggled with it with my sponsor the first time we read through it. And I'm sure I've struggled with it in the past when I've read through it before. But in any event, that's the doctor's opinion. And I think that little passage had a lot to do with the success of this program. I don't think that the program wouldn't have succeeded without that being added, but being able to refer to a doctor in a time when people were just extremely suspicious of of things but not really willing to do a lot of research on whether or not things were factual or even able to. You know, a lot of the people that were involved in this just weren't well-read themselves because it wasn't an easy thing to be. Yeah, there wasn't the internet. You know, you probably, as a lower middle class person, for the most part, you probably couldn't afford books. <laughs> you probably couldn't afford to, to have, you know, different pieces of literature sent to you. You probably couldn't afford college. I mean, a lot of people did afford college because, you know, money was different and there was just something different about that time, but not a lot of people went. You could work at a grocery store. I think it's even one of these stories that I'm referencing. You could work at a grocery store part-time and have enough to pay for an apartment and any of the small things you might need, you know, cooking utensils and, and groceries, because there weren't a lot of exterior things you could spend your money on outside of maybe going to a movie once in a great while or some other extravagancy. So it just wasn't, it wasn't quite a, as much of a requirement to be 
able to counter a claim a doctor made. You know, if a doctor told me that I was suffering from some ailment, the first thing I would do is go and research that online. That wasn't really how things worked back then. So having a doctor come in onto the, the book and say, you can trust these men and here's why. Here's my anecdotal reasons why I think this, this program is going to work for you. That was good enough. It was good enough for a lot of people. They saw that and they were like, cool, I'm sold. You guys have it. This doctor could have not even existed. <laughs> there is no way to prove that he did. But that's not the point. One, he did exist. So they weren't just lying to people. But they could have. And people were easily swayed when it came to signing your name with an MD at the end of it. I think that's kind of just an important aspect of this whole process. Could you imagine if AA were to start now? You know, if there was no program previously outside of rehabs and other, maybe SMART and a few other programs that were attempting, attempting to start up, and then all of a sudden there's this Alcoholics Anonymous, you see a couple articles, you know, and they supposedly had a doctor on the, on the, in the forward telling you that, yeah, I trust this. I don't know if it would be as easily successful. Now, I say that, but then there's people like Dr. Oz out there giving all kinds of misinformation to folks, and people eat that shit up. So maybe this weird trust without exploration thing is still um, a possibility. I just feel like a lot more people would be skepti skeptical enough that they would start looking into it, and that just wasn't something that happened back then. So I think, I think it was really important to have that doctor's note you know, really led major weight to a program that was needed and a lot of people needed it. So I don't know exactly where I was going with that. Uh, but that's, you know, these are the kind of things that pop into my head. Like, you know, if they hadn't gotten a doctor to sign off on it, it would have just been two dudes saying that, yeah, this works. And we, uh, we admit that it works and you have no reason to believe me outside of me putting it on this page. So, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I'm thankful that this doctor led it the way that he did and told people about it. Word of mouth was huge, huge, huge back then. A lot of ways it was the only way things could spread. So him passing that on to his fellow doctors and telling other people inside the medical industry that this can be trusted, direct your people to this program, uh, had a lot, I think, to do with the swell in numbers as well. Because right after this, it seemed to explode. It was growing pretty substantial. People were doing all kinds of manner of things in order to get the word out. You know, working at the central office on volunteer writing different, you know, people that might be interested, sending out um, missives, going door to door in some cases, I guess not door to door, but, you know, showing up like they were to different hospitals and saying, give me your drugs. <laughs> I'm going to fix them. A lot of, lot of feet on the pavement kind of a movement, having a doctor there helping you do that, you know, so when you showed up, you know, Bill Wilson would show up, they'd be like, oh yeah, we heard of you. We know about your program. Dr. Silkworth told us all about it. Here's the people that you can help. Just, I mean, did so much to help this program. And I'm sure it did. And I'm sure that it did a lot more to help the confidence that the founders of the program may have felt. Because I can't imagine it was always easy. I can't imagine that this thing just fell, fell. They even talk about how difficult some of the times were, the adolescent periods. And having a doctor say, no, this is working, I'm sure it helped a lot of people that were maybe on the fence that maybe were even considering going back out and drinking because they didn't think this was going to work. I don't know. Just kind of, you know, just considering the fact that there were so many things that could have made this program completely a failure and so many things that could have stopped the program from continuing on and little missteps that could have just put the brakes on so much of this. It is fascinating that the things that came together, the puzzle pieces that fell together, were just so happenstantial. Like the fact that, I don't even know if that's a word, we're going to say it is. The, the fact that they even know Dr. Silkworth was 
because Will, Will, Bill Wilson went to that hospital and helped someone in that hospital, and it drew the interest of this doctor. Maybe if he'd have gone to a different hospital that day, there wouldn't be a passage by a doctor. They wouldn't have, He wouldn't have found somebody. What if he'd gone off and drank instead? Like, it's just so many small things. And, and I do believe that it's because of those small things that people feel that there's divinity inside this program. I'm not quite one of those. I think that eventually a program like this would have come about. I don't think that this is the only attempt at making a program either. I think other programs were, were attempted before this. It just, the tumblers fell together to open this lock in particular, and it could have happened a lot differently than it did. And it's just fascinating the way that everything did fall into place. I'm kind of repeating myself here. Uh, this is the end of the episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm trying to get a little better at reading aloud and hopefully that'll flow a lot better as we get you know further into this. Bill's story is fantastic, I think. It's so it's so wildly written. Uh, so I hope you stick around. I hope you come back for that. Um, if you want to reach out, I have a Facebook page. Uh, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA on Facebook. Um, you can also send me direct mail at tophatpainter at gmail.com. You know, if you have something specifically you want to talk to, talk about or maybe something you want me to share online, some sort of advice I could give if that's even a, a possibility or some advice you want to give me, part of your story, anything. Um, I'm open to it. So I appreciate anybody that's listening and I, I hope you come back to, to listen again. Thank you.